well-known and well-spoken English preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, said these words. He said, a great guide of the world is fashion and its God is respectability. Two phantoms at which brave men laugh. How many of you look around on society to know what to do? You watch the general current and then float upon it. You study the popular breeze and shift your sails to suit it. True men do not do so. You ask, is it fashionable? If it is fashionable, it must be done. Fashion is the law of the multitudes, but it is nothing more than the common consent of fools, unquote. Now, that could have been written like last week, right? And here's C.H. Spurgeon uh, stating these, the case, as it were. A few years ago, I was challenged by a book written by Billy Graham's grandson entitled Unfashionable, Making a Difference in the World by Being Different. Now, sadly, I have to give you this disclaimer that the author derailed from the ministry, the author of that book. Nevertheless, some of the things that were written in that book still ring true. The book begins by utilizing an old David Letterman-style top 10 list that in an uncomfortably fun sort of way helps us to understand what he means by the term and the title, unfashionable. I share it with you this morning because I think it effectively sets the stage for the, the text that we are going to look at today and we're dealing with and not so indirectly addresses one of the hottest debates in contemporary evangelicalism, namely how we are supposed to relate to the broader culture around us. So let's begin with this top 10 list. You may be too fashionable if, okay? Number 10, you can look around at church and notice that everybody is basically the same age as you are and they look and dress pretty much the same way. Number nine, you think it's very uncool to sing a worship song that was in five years ago, much less sing a hymn from another century. Number eight, you may be too fashionable if it's been a long time since you disagreed with anything said by Oprah. Number seven, you've attended a leadership conference where you learned more about organization and props than proclamation and prayer. Number six, your goal in spending time with non-Christians is to demonstrate that you're really no different than they are. And to prove this, you curse like a sailor, drink like a fish, and smoke like a chimney. Number five, you've concluded that everything new is better than anything old or that everything old is better than anything new. That's interesting, isn't it? Number four, you think that the way Jesus lived is more important than what he said. Let me say that again. You think that the way Jesus lived is more important than what he said. That his deeds are more important than his doctrine. Number three, you believe that the best way to change our culture is to elect a certain kind of politician. Ooh, that hits close to home, doesn't it? Number two, 
The church you've chosen is defined more by its reaction to boring traditional churches than by its response to a needy world. And number one, top reason that you may be too fashionable if, the one verse you most wish wasn't in the Bible is John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, because you think that's way too close-minded. Last week, we began to look at Paul's charge to his young protege, Timothy, and as a, as a wise, experienced mentor under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul lays out some very clear wisdom about how you and I should relate to the broader culture as carriers and communicators of the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. As I said last time, he fires this series of charges that rattle our rib cage. And let me review quickly. Paul's first charge was to, number one, he said, listen up. Okay, I want you to turn, first of all, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is the text that we're going to be reading in and studying. He says, listen up, first and foremost, because we're under an authoritative charge, so set some spiritual priorities. That's verse 1 in 2 Timothy 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his Kingdom. So that gets our attention, right? Perk up your ears, listen up. This is the authoritative charge. And secondly, he encouraged Timothy, and by application to all of us, to speak up. That's in verse 2. Because we've been given an aggressive challenge. Our faith must not be private, but it's to go public. Okay, look at verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. If we're going to pursue spiritual excellence in the church or in our individual lives, Paul says, we must maintain these priorities. Now, here they are. He says, first, communicate with credibility. He says, preach the word. Secondly, consider the urgency. Be prepared. Correct with sincerity reprove, confront sin directly, rebuke, and cultivate sensitivity, exhort. And he says we're going to do it all with great patience and instruction. That's all in verse 2, okay? So Paul comes out of the chute to Timothy. He says, I want you to, I want you to listen up and I want you to speak up. Look at verses 3 and 4. Why do we do this? Why should this be so urgent to us? Because verse 3 says that time will come. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their desires, their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul's saying, wake up. Wake up. We're facing antagonistic conditions in this world. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says, you're going to find out that there will be times when people will have no stomach for solid teaching, but will fill up on spiritual junk food, catchy opinions that tickle their fancy, 
They'll turn their backs on the truth and they'll chase after mirages. The time will come, Paul says, when they will not endure sound doctrine. Putting it plainly, Paul says that they will not stand for or tolerate sound, healthy, biblical doctrine. Friends, this is that time. I said that last week. I'll say it again. This is that time. And don't misread this text, by the way. It's not that people aren't hearing the truth. It's there. They hear it fine. They simply flat out reject it. Willfully. And they have no stomach for the sound of truth even. It's dissonant in their ears. Within our text today are four major characteristics of an apathetic and an apostate culture that Paul refers to here. And we're going to look at that right here starting in verses 3 and 4. First of all, Paul says they're going to reject the faith. They will reject the faith. Sound, right there, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I mean, sound doctrine here, if you look at that phrase, is a key phrase in Paul's pastoral letters to both Timothy and to Titus. First Timothy, second Timothy, and Titus repeat this phrase, sound doctrine, multiple times. It's important to Paul. Sound doctrine is exactly what the church needs to uphold. Paul wrote to Timothy and said that, the church is the pillar and the support of what? The truth. That's what the church is. The pillar and the support of the truth. In the midst of a society that exalts the so-called virtues of multiculturalism, relativism, and secular humanism, the church of Jesus Christ must maintain firm footing on what sound doctrine really is. And no time is more suited to that than now. Too many contemporary churches have taken the position that to teach theology would deliver a death blow to their attendance charts. And so the people come away with no distinct doctrinal position on any of the fundamentals and how that may apply to the issues of the day. Well, I got to tell you, after 33 years of being here, it hasn't killed our attendance. When asked about the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, salvation by grace through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ as our substitute, the inerrancy and the infallibility and the authority of the, and the inspiration of the Bible, the triune Godhead, the depravity of man and his inability to save himself, the personality of the Holy Spirit and the personal and literal return of Jesus Christ, a shocking number of Christians have no scripturally based, well thought out position. And if you don't have a position on those things, I encourage you to take that apologetics course that we just advertised. Because Dr. Lambertson will give you an arsenal of tools. He's a brilliant man, one of my favorite instructors in Bible college. The result is what William Hendricks refers to as folk religion which permeates the streets. By folk religion, this is what he means. He means popular but inaccurate ideas about what our faith is and how our faith applies. Folk religion, said one man, is marked by simplistic formulations of supposedly biblical truths. It is essentially McDoctrine. Spiritual fast food of proof texts and cliches that are filling and fattening, but not particularly nourishing, 
unquote. Now, the tendency for most people is to view doctrine as dry and academic and irrelevant, not to mention that it puts the Holy Spirit in the box. You've heard that before, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. Doctrine is the teaching which God has revealed in his word about himself. That's what it is. We dare not preach anything else. Sound doctrine must be taught in a relevant manner with practical emphasis. As D.L. Moody once pointed out, quote, the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives, unquote. But that's the rub. Sound doctrine confronts us as well as it comforts us. It convicts us as well as it confirms us. And many people don't want to be confronted with their sin or challenged in their lifestyles. I want you to really grasp something, friends, that, that I've been saying for the entire time that I've been preaching here at Fayette Baptist Church. The word divides. The word divides. That, that statement it always has, it always will. That was impressed upon me from day one of my salvation by, by the man, my father-in-law, who led me to Christ. And it's something that has stuck with me ever since. The word divides. It divides families, it divides friendships, it divides culture, it divides in all ways. And Jesus said that it would do that. Paul knew it, and he lived it. And so he warned Timothy that the time would come, indeed the time is now, when an apostate culture will not only reject the faith, but secondly, they will seek to appease themselves. Seek to appease themselves, verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will accumulate, they'll pile up, Teachers who will say exactly what they want to hear. Scratch where they itch. Tickle their ears. My friends, we are living in a time when a plethora of books and tapes, programs, CDs, conferences, podcasts, teachers, churches, and counselors, and spiritual information available to us is absolutely staggering, isn't it? Every imaginable kind of teaching, both true and false, is instantly accessible to you and I, you and me. And, and that has radically affected the church, whether you know it or not. Radically affected the church. Because if you don't like my theology, you can go down the street and attend another church that may suit your needs a little bit better. If you don't like the fact that a pastor preaches that sin is sin, you can find a church that allows sin to go on. And the people Paul describes here are bent on one thing in 2 Timothy 4, self-gratification. Forget the application of sound teaching. Forget the hard task of sitting under the convicting message of the truth. A majority of the people in the church today don't really want the truth. They want entertainment in some churches. Not saying this church, some churches. They want to be soft-stroked. They want to feel good about themselves. And the philosophy goes like this. And literally, people have told me this to my face before. 
Quote, we've got enough stress in the world from Monday to Friday. We don't need to hear about sin. We don't need to hear about repentance. We don't need to hear about our need of salvation. We don't want to know where our lives need to be changed. We want to be happy, unquote. This is where the, whether you, uh, you might be too fashionable if you agree with Oprah more than you do with the Bible. That's what a lot of churches ought to call their Sunday morning services, by the way. Some churches, happy hour. Because that's all they are. They accomplish nothing more than to take the edge off a hard week. But the church of Jesus Christ exists for something far different and infinitely greater than what a cold beer or a dry martini can provide. The church is to be the pillar and the support of the truth. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 3.15. I already alluded to that. Let that one sink into your souls. It's interesting to me, however, that by and large, it's churched people that are most attracted to the feel-good church. Increasingly today, we find that people outside Christian circles aren't drawn in by the so-called cool, hip factor. Church people are. In fact, they see right through it. Real truth seekers in this generation are not fooled by services that amuse. And by the way, do you know what the word amuse means? Look it up. It means to not think. See, people that are truth seekers today want solid food that nourishes their hurting souls. They want to think. Ironically, writes one author, our culture's rejection of absolute truth is stoking an unprecedented hunger for truth. In his book, Surprising Insights from the Unchurched, Tom Rayner reveals interesting discoveries that highlight the contemporary thirst for church. He said more than 85% of the unchurched people Rayner surveyed said that the church's theology and doctrine would be their primary consideration in choosing a church. Not music not entertainment, but theology, the truth. New generations are thirsting for truthfulness, not trendiness. They got trendiness all around them. But if they're really seeking truth, they're looking for something else. One author wrote, just as people are starting to seek after truth, many churches are turning away from it. And as a result, these churches are losing their distinct identity as a people set apart to reach the world. I have good news for all of us who are becoming weary of this pressure from church leaders to fit in with the world. We don't have to. The relevance of the church doesn't depend on its ability to identify the lightest cultural trends and imitate them, whatever they might be. I love what Oz Guinness says. This guy is a brilliant man. He says, the ultimate factor in the church's engagement with society is the church's engagement with God. They say that again. The ultimate factor in the church's engagement with society is the church's engagement with God. Not the church's engagement with the latest intellectual or corporate fashion. Contrary to what we've been hearing, our greatest need as 21st century churches is not structural, it is spiritual. 
Our main problem is not that we're culturally out of touch, says the author, it's that we're theologically out of tune. The Word of God has some haunting things to say about that. Turn in your Bibles for a minute, hold your finger in 2 Timothy and look at Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 30. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. This is the nation of Israel now, but we are mimicking this. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so. Notice, it doesn't say that other people out there that don't have religion love it so. It says, my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it is the haunting question. What will you do at the end of it? But back up a little bit and look at the indictment a little closer. Look at, at verse 21. Then down to verse 29. And note the reasons for Israel's predicted catastrophe. And see if they're not relevant for today. Verse 21. Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart, and they have turned aside and departed. Rebellion. Stubbornness and rebellion. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have withheld good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers, lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They are fat, they are sleek, they also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord, on a nation such as this? Shall I not avenge myself? There's stubbornness, there's rebelliousness, there's exploitation. The church father, Clement of Alexandria, wrote, he said, there are always teachers that are willing to scratch and tickle the ears of those who wish to be tickled. That's an early church father, way back in the early centuries. So the proliferation of meatless and baseless teachings that is available to the average person, all in the name of becoming relevant to the world, is astounding and it all sounds so good, but what is it doing for our life with Christ? Is the, is the big question. What is it doing for our life with Christ? Are we being changed into his image? The ironic fact is the more the church pursues worldly relevance, the more we will render ourselves irrelevant to the world around us. And that is what we are seeing Simone Weil well said, if you want to remain relevant, you must say things which are eternal, unquote. 
And I wouldn't say that she's an icon of believing, but that statement is absolutely true. Paul warned, they will reject the faith. They will seek to appease themselves. Thirdly, in verse 4, they will avoid the truth. That's a scary one. They will avoid the truth. They will turn away their ears from the truth, turn aside to myths. Meaning they will actively turn away from the truth. Actively. Friends, this point is as contemporary as it gets. I don't think... It can get much clearer than the same-sex controversy that has happened for years and years and years and now is mainstream and in a lot of churches. This is really not surprising, you know, since the clear biblical teaching on the issue has been jettisoned for years, right? I want to read you an excerpt from an article Christianity Today about the late J.I. Packer. Some of you recognize the name J.I. Packer, a recognized Anglican theologian who wrote one of the most famous Christian books available way, way, way back in Knowing God. In June of 2002, okay, so this is back a ways. You can see how long ago the tide turned and the truth has been pushed out of churches. In June of 2002, the Synod of Anglican Diocese of, of New Westminster authorized its bishop to produce a service for blessing same-sex unions to be used in any parish of the diocese that requested it. A number of synod members walked out to protest that decision and they declared themselves out of communion with the bishop and the synod and they appealed to the Archbishop of Canterbury and other Anglican primates to, and bishops for help. So the late J.I. Packer, a well-respected, again, theologian, and then executive director of Christianity Today, was one of the ones who walked out. Many people have asked him why. Though one part of his answer applies specifically to Anglicans, his larger argument should give guidance to any Christian troubled by developments in their church denomination. This is what he said. Why did I walk out with the others? Quote, because this decision taken in its context falsifies the gospel of Christ, abandons the authority of scripture, jeopardizes the salvation of fellow human beings and betrays the church in its God-appointed role as the bastion and bulwark of divine truth. That is a mouthful. That is a huge mouthful. Friends, we have to wake up, as Paul says. Paul's not giving this charge just to Timothy. He's not just giving Timothy a wake-up call, but us as well. We need to realize that when people reject the truth, the fourth thing's going to happen is that they're going to assent to lies. That's in the second part of verse 4. They're not only going to actively turn away their ears from the truth, they will turn aside to myths. It's inevitable. The spiritual vacuum that's left by the turn from truth must be filled so that people open themselves up to lies, to falsehood, to myths. And the word Paul uses for turn aside here is a medical term, believe it or not, meaning to wrench out of place, referring to a dislocated limb. OK, 
okay? Have you ever seen a dislocated arm? Not pretty. It has no freedom of action or independent movement on its own, right? It just hangs there until some outside force acts upon it. It has no ability to act or resist an outside influence. When people willfully reject and avoid the truth, they open themselves up to every kind of evil influence. They are incapacitated and wrenched out of place by delusion and render themselves unable to distinguish between right and wrong, true and false, moral and immoral, ethical and unethical behavior. As the Living Bible says, they will blithely follow their own misguided ideas. They'll chase after mirages. Listen, people want to be led by something, right? If it's not truth, it's going to be lies. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 and 21 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. In Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. That's pretty serious. So we're under an authoritative charge, according to Paul. Listen up. We've been given an aggressive challenge to speak up we're facing antagonistic conditions all around us, so wake up. And in light of these truths and the times that we live in, Paul says finally, we need to stand up. Stand up and develop an assertive character. That's verse 5. Look at verse 5. But you, you can put your name in there. That would be appropriate. But you, be sober in all things, Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to do what J.I. Packer did if you are facing the same thing? Because we face it in subtle ways. Martin Luther famously said, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point that the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ, because he says where the battle rages is where the loyalty of the soldier is proved. Luther's response at Worms, when he was asked to recant all of his writings, echoes down through the centuries to our ears today when he said, unless you prove to me by scripture and plain reason that I am wrong, I cannot and I will not recant. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe, because it endangers the soul. Here I stand, he said. There is nothing else I can do. God help me. Amen. Unquote. 
That's a powerful statement. I only hope that I can live up to that statement. Do you? We must maintain our spiritual priority to stand firm in the truth. Paul concludes his instructions with four concrete ideas, keys to effectiveness here. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. I'm just going to list them for you. Number one, they'll be on the screen. Stand calmly, he says, but you be sober in all things. Or as J.B. Phillips translates it, keep your mind sane and balanced. In other words, stay steady, stay calm, stay cool, stay collected, be aware of what's going on all around you, keep your head about you in all situations, don't give in to lunatic fanaticism. Can I say that a little more forcefully? Don't do it. And there's plenty of that around. Anglican John Stott said it best. He said, when men and women get intoxicated with heady heresies and sparkling novelties, we must keep calm and sane. True. How do you know you're involved with a biblical ministry or you're sitting under good teaching? Damn, my head's on the chopping block now. Ask yourself these questions. Is what I'm seeing and hearing biblically balanced? That's number one. Number two, is this ministry common sane? And number three, are these leaders spiritually led? Okay, led by the Holy Spirit. You ask those three questions and they will guide you. If you could say yes to those things, you're on the right track. So stand calmly, stand patiently. It says endure hardship. There'll be hard trials involved in facing off with a culture that's antagonistic to the truth, no question. We, we must not shrink back from living and proclaiming our loyalty to Christ. We should adopt the resolutions of the great theologian Jonathan Edwards, who while a teenage student at Yale University, wrote in his diary, and some of you have heard this before, quote, resolved that all men should live for the glory of God. Resolved second, that whether others do or not, I will, unquote. And then stand diligently. Verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. And it is work, right? Always be the bearer of good news. The New Living Translation put it like this, but you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at bringing others to Christ. In other words, let your life and work be evangelistic in character. That's the bottom line requirement for all believers, right? Be evangelistic in character. No matter what you're doing, is there an opportunity to witness for Christ? I'm going to tell you a little funny story when I was on vacation. We'll be done in a minute. So my son was here from Scotland my, and their family. And one of the things we do avidly is play disc golf. We've been playing a lot of disc golf with the kids and everything, and now it was time my son and I wanted to go out and have a nice private game early in the morning. So we decided to get up early in the morning and go and have a game. So we get to the course, sign in, we're getting all ready on the first tee, and here comes this strange guy up behind us. Mind if I join you? I'm like, oh. <laughs> I just wanted to have a quiet game with my son, right? And then the Holy Spirit prompted me and tweaked me and said, you're a pastor for crying out loud. <laughs> this is a God-appointed opportunity to witness to a strange person who's begging for your company, <laughs> right? I'm like, all right, all right, Lord, enough conviction. 
So we invited him to join, introduced ourselves, teed off. We're playing. We get to the third hole. Holy Spirit says, you better start this conversation. Because it's not going anywhere at this point. So I turned to the guy and I said, so what do you do for a living? He says, I'm a pastor. <laughs> so now I know what he was trying to do. He was trying to convert us. I, had to, I laughed out loud. I said, no kidding. So am I. <laughs> so that was an interesting round, to say the least. Be evangelistic in character is what Paul's saying here. And this is the bottom line requirement for all of us, right? So, and then finally stand steadfastly in verse 5 again. Fulfill your ministry. Literally, the phrase means to make full proof of it. Don't settle for mediocrity. Strive for excellence and bring to completion what God has given you and I to do. Don't forget that you and I have the authority given by God himself through Jesus Christ, and we have the power through God the Holy Spirit to fulfill the ministry he's called us to do. So let's finish strong, shall we? Billy Graham once said, the evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation and we cannot bear the full responsibility of the future. But we do have our generation. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibility to this age and take advantage of all the opportunities, unquote. So I challenge myself and all of you today, keep your spiritual priorities straight, listen up, speak up, wake up, and stand up and take advantage of those opportunities every chance you get. Amen? Amen? All right, so let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for the clarity of your word. I mean, we can't argue with these things that we read here. I mean, we can, but we'd be tried and found wanting if we did. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us, teaches us how we should live and when we should speak, when we should not speak, and how it all should be aligned let us not step outside of his will. But follow you, Lord Jesus, because you are our rabbi and we want to walk in the dust of our rabbi. We pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.